Hi everyone. I'm really excited today to have Maya as my guest, who is the author of an ongoing work called Journey to the Heart of the Desert, where she outlines the life of her grandmother, who was a black woman living in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And a little bit after. <laughs> okay, post. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then ended up moving to the Tone Odom Reservation and ended up meeting the person who she would end up marrying. Mm-hmm. And so it's a story about preserving family history and I'm super excited to have you here. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Do you, Is there anything else you wanted to share with listeners about who you are and how you came to write this work? Sure. Um, so just to introduce myself, my name is Maya Bernadette and I'm an enrolled member of the Tonantham Nation. My mother is African-American and Tonawatham, and my father is Mexican-American and white. And so I grew up in California. The first 12 years, I was in a small suburb called Palos Verdes, and then I moved to Oakland with my mom and my sister. But throughout my life, we would always visit the reservation. So I do have memories going with my mom, my cousin, my sister, and it would just be kind of short trips now and then and here and there. So I always knew about my Tonawatham identity and I did feel connected to it, but I definitely wanted to do more. So after I graduated from college in 2008, I found an organization called the National Society of American Indian Elderly. And so they worked with the Tonawatham Nation. And so through them, I was placed out in cells with the Department of Senior Services and basically spent the whole year there just learning more about my culture, meeting people and reconnecting with old relatives. Oh, that's great. And so do you still have family that live on the reservation? Yes, I have relatives that live on the reservation and then other Tonawatham relatives that live in Tucson, but we go to the reservation now and then. Okay, cool. And what made you decide to write this story about your grandmother? Well... It was totally by chance, honestly. I think it's funny that when you grow up, your own life, because it's your life, you never really think about how unique it could be. But it was during my senior year at Yale. I, I went to Yale too. Really? No way. <laughs> We're so similar. We're both from the Bay Area. And yeah. We went to Yale. Yeah. Wow. So I was class of 2008. Okay, cool. I graduated 2014. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so I was in a major called the History of Science and Medicine. And in that major, you have to write a senior essay, which is about 40 pages long, kind of like a research project. Mm-hmm. And so my mentor, Jay Gitlin, is a professor of history there. And he's not native himself, but he's really involved in the native community. So that's how I got to know him kind of throughout my four years there. I feel like that describes a lot of Ivy League professors that are in indigenous studies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They're just so interested in the topic. And um, he... So, so we were talking about my essay, which... It's not related to this. It had to do with the Indian Health Service. And then he was just curious, like, you know, how did you... What is that, the Indian Health Service? So the Indian Health Service is a federally funded program that provides health services to Native Americans as part of various treaty agreements with various tribes. The federal government agreed to provide primary care services to enrolled members of federally recognized tribes. So throughout the country, there's various Indian health service facilities. Here in Tucson, actually, there's one where the Sanavir Reservation is. So if you go off the I-19 freeway and you exit Mission, you will find yourself at an IHS facility. I had no idea that that existed. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So Native Americans, we do get 
kind of free healthcare, but it's more primary care. Okay. Yeah. So if you need yeah, specialists, so you need a specialist yeah, then you have to pay for it on your own. Okay. And so that was what I was interested in writing my senior essay about. And then, you know, just kind of continuing with the topic, Jay was like, so how do you, uh, how are you involved in the, the Native American community? And so I told him that my grandmother, Esther Poncho, she's African-American and she trained as a teacher. And so she saw this flyer in a library in Harlem that said you could teach Indians on reservations. And she was really intrigued because she just loved adventure. And so she wanted to do it. She'd never heard of what, you know, knew anything about Native Americans or anything like that. So she called them up and they placed her out at um, Santa Rosa in um, in Guachi District, which is one of the districts on the Tonotham Reservation. And then that's how she met my grandfather because he's from Santa Rosa Village in Guachi District. And he was really involved in the community there. And so my advisor was like, wow, like that's so unique. You have to write a book. <laughs> and I was like, really? Well, let me let me finish my senior essay first. Like one big writing project at a time. And I he planted the idea in my head, but I never really thought much of it. And then a couple years later, I think it was in about 2012, I was back at Yale and he was still there. He's still there to this day, actually. And he was like, how's that book coming along? And I was like, oh, I haven't even started it yet. <laughs> so that's when I first started to take it seriously and wrote a draft like the first first draft but that was not very good so i got rid of it there's no evidence of that one. Oh my god <laughs> yeah. you totally got rid of it yeah <laughs> so the right that's how the writing process is it's very like stop and start yeah but that was like my first effort into okay i'm going to take this seriously i'm actually going to do it mm-hmm. and then i got rid of that draft and then started another one and then here we are years later where I finally have a working draft. And now I'm really taking it seriously where wow. I want to do a final edit edit, and then um, look for publishers. Because as I've been doing this project and talking to more people, I realize how important it is to really capture uh, the Tonotham culture and Tonotham yes. community. Yes. Because our tribe is changing. It really is. I'm mixed race. I know so many Tonotham who are mixed race themselves. And so that brings a new aspect to our culture, because if we're so mixed with other cultures, then how will we preserve this Tonotham identity that we have? And also, too, Tonotham identity, of course, changes throughout the decades, like Mm -hmm. being a Tonotham back when my grandfather was alive or when he was on the reservation back in like the 40s vastly different from being a Tonotham today and the next generation that's growing up. So I, I see now it's important to really document these stories and document how the Tonotham community changes over time. Yeah. And then just to really explore cultural preservation as well, because that's also a big issue on the tribe is how to preserve our culture. Mm-hmm. So there are efforts to preserve the language, to keep the ceremonies. And then I think this book and just other writings by other Tonotham can also contribute to that effort. So have you felt that tension in your own identity of being mixed race and feeling pulled in different directions? Um, I do. I think every mixed race person feels that because it's so interesting to be like two different things at the same time. And then me, it's like four different things at the same time. (laughs) So I do feel that pull in some sense. But I guess I've always been more involved in the Tonotham community than the African-American community. And I, and honestly, I think that's because of my grandmother, <laughs> again, going back to the book, because she really 
tried and tried. She's still alive, actually. She's oh, wow. 94 years old. Oh my gosh. Super impressive. Yeah. And so she really maintained uh, the Tonotam culture, not only in me, but in our whole family. And so I think that's also why I'm so drawn to it, because I saw um, how important it was for her to maintain it in the culture, and that was kind of passed down to me. So your grandma eventually became a member of the tribe. No, and that's what's doubly interesting about the story is that she herself is African-American. So she's no connection or tie at all to any Native community. But her husband, you know, who's Tonatham, was the love of her life. Mm -hmm. And so that's also kind of this beautiful aspect, I think, of like relationships. Like you love somebody so much that you even maintain their own culture in your own family. And so I really love that aspect about it as well. And I think even that could be a lesson for people who are in mixed race relationships. Mm -hmm. Like you may not even think about it, but your partner's culture might be really important to your kids. So then you, even though you're not that culture, maybe you can also maintain that culture for your kids because it's a part of your partner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just all these things that you never really think about. But I just really appreciate just kind of all these new insights into that. And that's also too, again, like an interesting part of uh, the cultural preservation is like, yeah, she wasn't native, she wasn't told about them at all, but yet she knew so much about the culture that, you know, she still kept this important culture passed down, even though she wasn't even a part of it. So, like, in a sense, maybe she, like, I don't know. I mean, it's not like she's an honorary Tonotham, I guess. <laughs> like, because you can't be enrolled in the tribe unless you have a bloodline. Mm-hmm. But still maintain that culture because of this love for her husband. And the culture itself, she really values and appreciates the Tonotham culture and learned so much from it and then passed it down to us. And what does she think about the book now? Well, she hasn't read it yet, <laughs> but she's really excited, you know, that I took everything so much to heart. I guess you never realize how people take what you say really to heart because she's like, wow, like I didn't realize like, you know, my stories like had that much of an impact on you. You know, like when you mm-hmm. take care of your grandchildren, you know, you might tell some stories now and then and you never think they listen to you. <laughs> I was listening, Grammy. I was listening the whole time. Aww. So, so yeah, she she really appreciates that. Um, I really took that to heart. Mm-hmm. And that's another theme of the book that I really wanted to explore was family mm-hmm. and more specifically the role of storytelling in maintaining a family. Mm-hmm. Because for me, my grandmother really helped raise me and my sister growing up because mm-hmm. my mom and my dad were really busy working. Mm-hmm. And just these stories she told us really shaped just my own identity and my place in the world like I just didn't realize how powerful stories are but they just really give you a sense of identity and a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. and it really gives a family meaning like as um, I write in kind of the end of the book like these weren't just kind of like random stories that you hear now and then but it's Mm -hmm. like a part of not only my identity but our entire poncho family identity Mm -hmm. and so it's a way to maintain you know our legacy and our family so even You know, when we pass away, like life is fleeting, but the stories will always stay behind. And so that's a really powerful message that I didn't really appreciate till I was older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of how with Mexican and other Latin American, Dia de los Muertos, in that there's this idea that there's different kinds of death. Like there's the death that you experience when you leave the physical realm, and then there's the death that happens when nobody currently present on earth tells stories about you. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And I really saw that in my own life because my grandfather passed away before I was even born. So okay. I never I was going to ask if you yeah. also influenced your cultural appreciation. Right. So I never even knew my grandfather, yet I felt like I knew him so much because of my grandmother's stories. Mm-hmm. So again, that's going on with the theme of how, as you just said, you can pass away physically, but then your presence can still be here through the stories. Did your grandmother also talk about growing up in Harlem? She did, yeah. So I have a whole chapter about that. Okay. And, um, it just, you know, I guess the way we remember our childhood, it was just so idyllic to her where you could just like go out to the sidewalk and like knock on your friend's door and be like, hey, let's go out and play. And they just like play out on the street until oh. the sun went down and go home. And so, yeah, we definitely, I definitely have a chapter in there about that. And she would definitely talk about her childhood growing up and... Um, she had two brothers, two older brothers, and how they would tease her all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. It was, just sounded like so idyllic back then. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting, too, how she, t- speaking of family, so I guess her ancestors came from the south, from Florida, and most of them migrated up north. And that's interesting, connecting to a historical event with the Great Migration, mm-hmm. which talks about millions of Southern Blacks moving up north for better opportunities and more freedom. Mm-hmm. And so her family was kind of like that, actually. A lot of them moved up to New York City. And she even says that they still kind of had the structure of the South, meaning mm-hmm. like you had all these relatives that lived next to you or lived near you. And so, you again, with a sense of belonging, is mm-hmm. like you had all this family around you. So you knew, you know, who you were and you knew you belonged somewhere. Mm-hmm. Did her ancestors grow up in the southeast part of the United States? Yeah. So there's a story that she'd tell us of her mom and her mom's sister, like her aunt, who were in Florida. And um, they would like work on the farms and stuff like that. And then they actually ended up moving up north too. Did she ever talk about the difference between the southeast and the southwest? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) What are her thoughts on that? So again, with the time period, because it was just so different back then in the 40s. When she came to Tucson on the train, it was just so like complete desert, like something you'd see in an old Western. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And old Westerns were literally filmed here. You're right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really like that back then. Mm -hmm. And there's like barely any African-Americans at that time here and so she just really could see kind of the stark difference and then with the landscape too the desert was so different from both the swamplands of florida but then also the northeast too because in new york city you know a big city it's like snowing in winter and really humid in the summer and so even the landscape was so different and she was just so amazed by all these um, palm trees that she saw in the cactus you just can't see that anywhere else meet yeah so um they met because my grandfather was really involved in community events Mm -hmm. and so he would always be going to different meetings and stuff like that and he was also a bus driver so she kind of saw him being involved in the school in that way Mm -hmm. so then they just kind of started talking and then eventually just like started to fall in love (laughs) it was just really yeah like that simple (laughs) 
Do you want to read excerpts of the book? Sure. Yeah. Let me pull it out here. All right. So. There is a plant in the corner of the room and family pictures line the walls. The two youngsters have just eaten dinner and the sun is setting outside. It's almost 5 p.m. and the colors of the sunset cast a beautiful shadow on the room, almost as if the golds, reds, and pinks of the sun were in the room itself, bathed in its twilight glow. An elder comes in, takes a seat in the armchair next to the couch, and begins not with the story, but with silence. She's in about her mid-70s, though the absence of wrinkles and a cane suggests someone much younger. One of the youngsters, Maya, waits in rapt attention for her grandmother to tell her the same story she has heard since she could first understand words. She sits there, on one side of the couch, a mass of dark brown curls cinched to the nape of her neck with a black hair tie. Another girl, Tina, younger in age, sits next to her. Her straight black hair is pulled high on her head into a sleek ponytail. At first glance, the two girls cannot look more different. Maya with her curly hair and cinnamon-tinted skin, Tina with her straight black hair and skin three to four shades lighter. On closer inspection, however, the similarities become more evident. The small, slender noses, thin lips, and crescent-shaped eyes. Sisters, for sure. Tina breaks the silence. Do you need anything, Grammy? She asks, getting up off the couch to go to the kitchen. Just some water, the elder replies, and again waits in silence until Tina comes back. Tina returns, setting the glass of water on the table in front of her grandmother. Esther brings the cup to her lips and takes a sip. So how did you end up on the reservation again? Tina asks, as if she hasn't heard the story a hundred times before. Esther sets the cup down and takes a deep breath. There was a flyer, she said, and Maya and Tina snuggle on the couch to get ready for a long night. They love when the story starts here, from the beginning. And so that scene is literally like my real life. <laughs> Growing up, we would, like me and my sister would just sit around a table and my grandmother would tell us stories. And it's funny too how we all, me and my sister would know the same story because she'd repeat certain stories over and over again. And you never even realize the importance of repetition either because mm -hmm. you think like, oh, I've heard this a million times. But it actually gives you like a sense of, place and like a sense of meaning because mm -hmm. when you hear it so many times it almost becomes real in a sense and it mm -hmm. becomes like a part of you and so and it feels like your origin story exactly yeah that's why it's so fun to listen to right right exactly <laughs> your origin story and so that's kind of how I wanted to open the book and so the whole book is basically more literary nonfiction. And my, okay. when I first started the draft that I got rid of that will never be seen again, it was more like a memoir style, like per first person, like, you know, I was born in California, blah, blah, blah. But then I just realized like that wasn't true to how I experienced it because the way I experienced it was almost surreal in a sense because I think all of us, when you look back at our memory, we don't remember things so literally, but we remember kind of like big overarching ideas and conveniently like filter in the positive things right. and the negative things that happen to kind of filter it out. And so I wanted to present the book the way it's in my own memory, mm -hmm. basically. And so, yeah, that's how it is. And two, with like the passage of time, 
in the book, most of it's just going to be like that one night. Mm-hmm. But then towards the end of the book, I'm going to kind of fast forward to when I'm an adult and then my own process, like writing the book. Oh, cool. um, and then it will end with my grandmother and just kind of reflecting on her life. And she, because the ending is when she's 91, but now she's 94. <laughs> so I'll probably have to change that ending a little yeah. bit. But even in her own life, you know, she uh, has lived in California for decades and decades. So we've always asked her, like, well, are you ever going to go back to New York City? Like, we know that's your home. And she says she probably wants to be buried there. Okay. So it'll kind of, like, her whole life will just come full circle, right? She was born in New York City and will end up being buried there. And then her husband, so my grandfather, is buried on the Tonotham Reservation. Mm. So she doesn't live on the reservation anymore. No. Yeah. So they only lived there for a couple years when she was teaching. And then when they had kids, they had to compromise because my grandmother did not want to live on the reservation indefinitely. She's a city girl. And so there's no way she wanted to live in a super rural area. And my grandfather was the opposite. He was a reservation guy. So Mm -hmm. he did not want to live in the big city, New York City. So they compromised and they moved to um, Riverside and then Oxnard is kind of where they settled. And so that's where my mom and my aunt were raised. That's pretty suburban, right? Riverside? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a good uh, compromise because it was about like 10 hours away from the reservation. Okay, yeah. And then like it was like a smaller kind of city. Mm -hmm. So it was city enough for my grandmother, Mm -hmm. but like small enough for my grandfather. I think it's interesting that you switched genres to literary nonfiction because did that make you feel more pressure to actually get close to quote-unquote objectivity? A little bit, yeah. Because I think with memoir, I would assume that... I I think you assume that because it's based on someone's memory that there's going to be kind of, like you said, their own positive... Like filtering the positive, forgetting the negative. Right. Yeah, Yeah, but with literary nonfiction, because it's like a third-person type approach, yeah, you do have to focus more on being objective and then really setting the scene too because with memoir it's more like personal story but Mm -hmm. for literary nonfiction, you really got to set the scene like the place and what it looks like and all of that stuff so just as a writer it's really kind of forced me to stretch because I've just mostly written just kind of like about ideas and concepts but in terms (laughs) of like kind of fiction I've never really done that before and so I think this is a good way for me to kind of expand my writing skills a little bit mm-hmm. I definitely felt that with the prologue it was definitely a, oh, good. Really, cool. a really amazing setting of the scene oh good well thank you yeah. <laughs> do you have plans for other book projects as of right now I don't I'm trying to get this one off the ground I mean, I just have so many ideas. Oh my goodness. Like, I would love to do something on Sonoran Catholicism because... Oh, that sounds uh, really interesting. Yeah. In the Tonotham culture, we're very syncretic because the Franciscan priests who were Catholic came to the reservation in about the 1700s and built the Santa Vera Mission, which is still standing to this day. Oh, yeah. Um, and so Catholic icons like the Virgen de Guadalupe is a very common symbol you'll see on the reservation. There's a walk called, or it's like a pilgrimage for St. Francis de Assisi to Magdalena, which is a city in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And that's to, well, that's based in Catholicism because St. Francis de Assisi was a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of like Catholic culture and Catholic belief 
belief kind of mixed in with Tanantum culture and belief. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to write a book on that one day. But that would be like a huge undertaking. So, but yeah, that would be great if I could do that in the future. Yeah, I think syncretism is so cool and important to talk about because it demonstrates the resiliency of indigenous peoples across you know, what we now call the U.S. and what is now Latin America. Right. Because Virgen de Guadalupe symbol has long been the symbol of, I think, indigenous women resistance mm-hmm. to Catholicism because, you know, yes, this was imposed upon people and they had to adopt it to a certain extent to survive. But at the same time, with their agency, they were able to refashion their ideas into something that was meaningful to them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you wanted to share? Well, I would just like to really encourage like anybody who's listening to really be bold and be brave and write your own story mm-hmm. because um, I've just done this on my own. Like, it's not like you can take a class on how to write a book. You just <laughs> got to do it and just make networks. And even if you fail the first time, you can always try again. My very first draft, I did not like it. So I just destroyed it and tried again. And second draft was a lot better and then too I think when it comes to maintaining your own cultural identity I think it's it is really important to share your own stories because the mixed race experience the Native American experience is something that needs to be preserved I definitely believe that and so one of the best ways to preserve that is just to to speak to share your story most people are really uh, excited and you know interested in learning more a lot of people don't know anything about Native Americans I think that's one thing I really realized as I've gotten older is a lot of people just are not familiar with the Native American experience at all. Yeah, or they're only familiar with a caricaturized version of it. Like right. Like sanitized, inaccurate version. Like yeah. what exists in Flagstaff, for example. Right, yeah, exactly. And so just... Or Sedona. Right, and so just sharing your own personal story, I think, can really help educate people and open up their eyes. And then another thing, too, I think, from the mixed race experience... Um, is when it comes to Native communities, I've read, I don't have a study with me, but I've read that as time moves forward, more and more Natives are going to be mixed race. Mm -hmm. And I think it said something like by 2050, only like 8% of Native Americans will be full bloods. And then you can only imagine what it's going to be like 100 or even 200 years from now. And so it seems to me that blood or blood quantum is becoming less relevant so then we as Native Americans have to figure out then what does it mean to be Native American, right? If barely anybody's full blood anymore, well, then we need to kind of change what it means to be Native. Because I myself, I'm 25%. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it just, again, shows that like this idea of like full blood or preserving the bloodline, like it doesn't seem realistic because we become more mixed race as we move forward. And so that is also why I think my project is important because it's showing that maybe Tonotham identity doesn't have to be so based in blood. Maybe it can be based in other things like family or like the language or your connection to the land, things like that. Mm-hmm. Because my, as I said, my grandfather is buried there on the reservation. So we have that connection. We also have a house um, that he built back in the 70s that's still out there. Mm-hmm. So it's these kind of physical things that define us maybe more than our blood. Because mm-hmm. then my mother, since I'm 25%, then that means my mother is 50%, right? So as generations move forward, you know, the blood quantum is getting less and less. So then, you know, being told about them will have to mean something different. 
I think. Again, like, I don't know. It's just my personal opinion, but I think it's just something that not only them, but all Native Americans um, need to think about. I thought that the blood quantum thing was something more imposed by the U.S. government and that people have long thought about cultural preservation as being the true marker of membership. Well, yes. It, originally, the blood quantum concept was imposed by the government, but then now, again, each tribe is different. So our tribe doesn't have a blood quantum requirement. It's based more on the DAWs rules. And so if you can trace an ancestor back to like the 1930s or you have like that cultural tie, you can be enrolled. But then other What's tribes... the cultural tie? The cultural tie would be an ancestor. So oh. like if they have it documented, like one of your ancestors was TO, was involved in the tribe, then you can enroll. Okay. So there isn't a blood quantum requirement. But then other tribes, they have adopted this federal government standard. And so they have a quarter or even a half. Other tribes have a 16th, a 32nd. And so, yes, it was imposed by the federal government, but it seems like some tribes have adopted it. So I think it's a discussion that each tribe itself has to have about how they're going to determine membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the counting of blood levels is also related to slavery. So, right, with so. like the idea of quadroons or octoroons. Yeah. yeah, so the whole blood quantum idea, it does have really dark undertones. Yeah, and it, I mean, it also... It, reifies this false idea that race is a biological truth. Mm -hmm. Race is a social construction that mediates how we experience the world based on how, you know, what our phenotypes are coded to mean. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, I think it's really silly to think that DNA can tie you to a race. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, it's complicated, as I said, because... Yeah, my grandmother is not Tonotham at all, but yet she knows yeah, so she, much about the she culture. Pres- she, yeah. like, preserved the culture and gave that to you. Right. Yeah. But she wasn't a member. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, again, like, there's all these different concepts that we have to explore. And so I just think, I hope it can be, like, a starting point for other tribes to, like, look at their own tribal requirements and, you know, see if it's working for them or if they need to change it in some way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the importance of networking. Mm-hmm. What networking have you done for this book? And what tips do you have for people who don't know other writers, don't know publishers? Oh, that's a good question. So first, Jay, my mentor, the one who encouraged me, he's mm-hmm. part of my network. I talked to him when I visited Yale last year mm-hmm. for my 10-year reunion. Oh, and nice. so, yeah, so he was like, well, let me know like when you have you know a good working draft. And there's also a professor that I knew when I went to the University of Arizona, and she's a writer. And so I'm going to email her. I met with her like years ago mm-hmm. when I was just starting out. And so she encouraged me and gave me advice writing a book proposal. And so when I have a stronger working draft, then I'm going to reach out to her. Cool. But yeah, like when it comes to networking, it's just anyone you hear of, you just got to email them, start talking to them. And then too, I mean, at the very least, you can always self-publish if you can't find a publisher, but I'm going to at least try. So I did email University of Arizona Press, but they Mm -hmm. didn't accept it. But again, too, that's another important lesson is like, you you get rejected a lot yeah. as a writer, so don't yeah. take rejections personally. It happens all the time. Yeah, that's a really good thing to say. Yeah, <laughs> because it can be like oh, you rejected me. What? Well, if you get like a ton, you know, I can. It, it's easy. Right. It affects your self-esteem. Right. It's, it's part of the game. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming here and chatting with me, and I'm really excited to read your book when it's published. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Bye, everyone.